Amen. Thanks, Jackie. You did such a beautiful job. Amen. Well, this is Palm Sunday. And uh, I, I look at Palm Sunday as the beginning of one of God's most urgent weeks. You know, it's the beginning of many things. It's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> and, and what we see in Palm Sunday is the beginning of, of a man that is a perfect man. A, a man that is truly a God-man. A man that made no mistakes. A man that is absolutely perfect. A man that is beginning the last week of his earthly life. And how important that man is. How important he is to us. Because if that man didn't do what he did, none of us would have any hope today. None of us would have any hope at all if it wasn't for what Jesus did beginning on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day that started the week that followed and after that changed the world forever. The world was never the same after Palm Sunday. It changed the world. And this week begins with a procession of introducing Jesus as the King of the Jews. And at the time of that time, people really had no idea of the significance of what they were, being a, what they were part of that day. They just saw this as a parade, a procession, of a man. They didn't understand the significance that this was just another Passover week as far as they were concerned. Passover came every year, and every year all of the Jews from the surrounding area came to Jerusalem, and they, had, they celebrated the Passover. And that was a celebration that they had. And, and this was, for most of them, this was no different than any other Passover they've ever experienced. However, one thing was different this year, and that is that Jesus was going to be there. Now, Jesus was three years into his ministry, and by now he was becoming pretty well known. Um, he was around 33 years old, and, uh, and people were starting to see who this man was. Jesus has, had accomplished many things in his three years of ministry up to that point in time, and people were now beginning to see him a little differently. They were starting to see him as, as really the king, the king of the Jews. And because this year was God's timing that he was going to bring Jesus as truly the king of the Jews, even though he was common among men as a man, he was different in that he was a God-man. And God sees different things in people. God sees who we are, too, in our mankind, doesn't he? Yes, we are common men and women. But yet, as Jesus enters our heart we become people of God. We become children of God. We become different than the world. We became different than who we were before. We become Christ-like. We become like him because Jesus has changed our heart. We're not the man we used to be. We're not the man of flesh we used to be. We are a man that is chases after God's heart now. We have a different heart. And that is exactly what Jesus was, re was representing this day as, as well. See, God's view of Jesus' kingship was not in this world, but of another world. The people here 
in this time mistook Jesus as the king that was going to set up a earthly kingdom. They, were, they, they thought he was coming to establish the kingdom here in Rome that was going to, uh, in Jerusalem, that was going to overthrow the rule of Roman leadership in their lives. And they thought that he was coming to do that. He had the ability to do it. He had the charisma to do it. He had the power to do it, obviously. He could, if he could raise a dead man, he could certainly overthrow Rome. If he could heal and do all the things that he did, if he could cast out demons from people, then he could certainly overthrow Rome. And so the people that were there that day, they saw him coming a little differently than what God saw. And that's like us today. How many times do we, don't, do we not get it? How many times do we see things from our perspective and God sees things from his perspective? And we just miss it so many times. We've talked about people missing it in the past. We talked about how the disciples missed it when Mary anointed Jesus. Actually, later in this week, that Mary anointed Jesus, his body for burial by that expensive gift of perfume and how they didn't get it. And, and so many times people just don't get it. But, you know, that's okay if we don't get it because God is very patient with us and he helps us to get it. He's help, he helps us. He's very patient and his love for us helps us to get it. I want to take some time this morning to describe the scene there in that first day of the last week of Jesus' life and to learn some things about ourselves possibly from this world-changing event. So let's try to imagine what that scene was like in that early spring day so many years ago. I read an author that described the day in this way. He said, The sun was rising rapidly. It was beginning to shoot its golden arrows across the horizon to gild the sky and curtain off the dawn that day that would bring a new day to the history-filled city of Jerusalem. This is the festive season of Passover. The old city was filled with pilgrims, visitors, and travelers who had come from many countries to share in the feast. Secular census records indicate that there were at least 2.5 million people in Jerusalem for, that, for the event. And an exciting rumor spread through the, through the city. Jesus Christ is coming. Behind, behind him were his sermons. Ahead of him was his suffering. Behind him were his parables. Ahead, his passion. Behind him were his suppers of fellowship. Ahead, his last supper of betrayal. Behind him, the delights of Galilee. Ahead, dark Gethsemane. Prophecy was now to become practice. There are some things here this morning that are worth mentioning about Jesus and his ability to see things as they are and yet not be affected by what he knows the outcome will be. See, Jesus knew his purpose. He knew that. And, and th well, I don't think we can emphasize too much that Jesus understood his purpose and he never swayed from his purpose. He, un he never took a detour from his purpose. He understood that. He could have been so easily swayed by public opinion today to change the plans. After all, he was God. He was God. He, he was God in the form of man, and, and he could very well have decided to call a new play. He could have said, no, I'm not going to proceed with what I know is ahead. I could have said, he could have said he could have called a thousand legions of angels. He could have called he could have called deliverance and immediately and God would have delivered him if he would have called it. He could have said, Why should I have to suffer and die for the sins that I haven't committed? 
Why should Satan get the upper hand here today? Why? I could redesign the whole thing if you wanted to. But what's so important to understand here is that the justice of God wouldn't allow that. Sin had to be accounted for. Every sin that you and I have committed must be paid for. And Jesus never lost his passion for his mission, and he knew that. He understood that, and he understood uh, because his great love or his love was as great as his father's love that he never wavered from his mission. And thank God that he didn't. Thank the Lord that Jesus didn't take the easy way out. Thank the Lord that he didn't compromise with what man could have, would have given him. They would have given him a kingship that day. But Jesus said, no, that's not the plan. And I believe that God is strongly encouraging us today to emulate Jesus in every aspect of our lives. We also are on a mission. We also must understand what our mission is. We are to be Christ-like and we also should set our ways not to be wooed by the things of this world that would want to distract us. We need to learn from Jesus to walk with as much courage and fortitude as he did. He knew where he was going. As we walk with Jesus through this last week of his life, we will see a sense of godly urgency in everything Jesus does. Jesus understood his mission. He understood the urgency of the days he had left. He was able to see the big picture of everything that was happening around him and to him and yet not lose the focus of the moment. Even when Satan used people to try to trip him up and to get him to sin and to, and to confuse him and to detract him from his purpose, Jesus had the God-given ability to hold the course, not give up, not sway with the crowd. Let's try to imagine what Jesus was thinking about as he was riding on the foal of a donkey on that processional day. Possibly he was reflecting on his life, of his life on this earth, of all the things that he'd accomplished, and all the people he touched, and then projecting up on the upcoming events that were to take place in the next few days. You can only imagine the thoughts that must have been running through his mind. He may have been running through many of the sermons and the times of discussion he had with his disciples and with the many others that he spent time with. He may have been rethinking many of the parables that he taught and, and rehearsing in his mind the outcome of people watching, watching people get it for the first time as, as they understood finally who they were talking to. It must have been very interesting for Jesus to watch the, the faces and the expressions of people when they realized that they were talking to the, to the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God, and to see and to feel their newfound love for him. What a time of reflection this must have been for Jesus as he was riding on that donkey. Maybe he thought about the dinner he had just a while ago with Zacchaeus and remembering Zacchaeus' reaction when, when he finally realized that all his life he was taking advantage of people and robbing them by overtaxing them. And then to watch him get it when Jesus forgave him. And then when Zacchaeus then took the money that he had robbed from people and he tried to make it right with people and he went back out and he gave money away to people and he made it right with people. Imagine the joy that Jesus must have had and the satisfaction that Jesus had to see a heart changed. Or how about just recently, a few days before this, he arrived only to find Lazarus, one of his best friends, had died. And how his sisters Mary and Martha were so distraught that Jesus was too late. He was too late. He missed it. 
They said, if you only would have been here, you could have healed him. He wouldn't have had to have died, Jesus, if you would have been here. We know you could have healed him. And he must have remembered the sorrow that he felt as he actually wept with them. The shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. He felt the pain. He felt the misery. He knew what it was to feel loss in his life because he saw Mary and Martha grieving over the loss of their brother. And then he might have reflected on his walk to the tomb where four days prior to Lazarus died. And he laid him in a tomb four days ago. And as he walked up to the tomb, the smell of death was already prevalent in the air. It was already pugnant. The smell of death was already there. And how he walked up and he said, move away the stone. And when he said that, and then he said the simple words. First of all, he prayed to the Father. He said, Father, listen, hear my prayer. And he prayed to the Father. Then he said the simple words, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And he did. You know, I've heard it said that if he wouldn't have said, Lazarus, come out, if he just would have said, come out, that his power was so powerful that all the dead in that area would have come to life. But because he said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus rose from the dead. And the joy that he must have felt for his friends that day, just minutes ago, he was weeping with them. And now he was rejoicing with them because Lazarus was now alive. And I can see Jesus reflecting on all the miracles that he performed all of his life, all the healings, all those that he delivered from demonic possession, all the expressions of joy and the wonder of people being healed and, and afflicted from such terrible diseases of the day. Some may have been afflicted since childhood, and, and with no medical attention, their lives were destined for misery all their life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and with a simple word, or Jesus instructing them to act out their faith, like, like he told the man to go. He, he spit in the dirt, remember, and he made mud, and he put it in the man's eyes, and he said, go wash yourself in the river. And the man had to do what he said. See, sometimes Jesus would just speak the word, and they were healed. Other times, he made them exercise their faith. Now, why is that, do you think? Why do you think that? Sometimes for you and I, sometimes it's just a simple prayer and all of a sudden we feel the peace of God come in our life. And other times he says, you know, I'm gonna, I need you to exercise your faith a little bit. I need you to get up and do something. You know, the book of James says faith without action is dead. We must put actions to our faith if it's going to be relevant, if it's going to be real. And Jesus is a practicer of that. He saw the heart of people. He knew when they needed to have their faith exercised. And he also knows when we need to have our faith exercised. So the joy that Jesus must have felt when all he saw all these things happening. And then all of a sudden, as he's thinking about this, the donkey, might, the donkey that he was riding on might have stumbled just a bit. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is thrust back into the reality of the day. He's on his last ride of his life. And all of a sudden, he's reminded of what his final mission is. To go through the worst week of his life in the next few days. To be questioned. To be falsely accused. To have to defend his father's house. To be betrayed. To be beaten, whipped, and scourged, and ultimately crucified. To carry the burden of all mankind's sin on his back. To have his father have to look away from him because of the sin that was on him. And then finally to be, the, to be the deliverer of all mankind. 
And yet in all of this, he has the ability to love those that will ultimately be bringing all this punishment on him. He loved those people. That's the amazing part of it all. He loved them. As they were beating him and whipping him and scourging him and ridiculing him, he never said one word against them. He loved them. Isn't that amazing? He could do all of this with the foreknowledge of what was to come. See, there are many times in our lives today that that we would just love to know the future, thinking that it would be good for me if I knew what tomorrow held. If I only knew what was ahead, I would be so much better to handle it. I would be so much more prepared if I knew what this week brought or if I knew what the final outcome of my life would be. But I would challenge us today that that's not what would be the best for us. See, Jesus had the supernatural ability to know the future and still live in the day that he was in. But I put myself in his position there, and if I was to say that if I would have been on that donkey that day, and if I would have known that in just a matter of a few days what was going to happen to me, I don't think I could have handled that. (laughs) I don't think I could have handled the week that was ahead of me if I knew what was happening. And in my life today, I see the same thing. You know, I want to, we want to know the future, don't we? We want to know that. I mean, look at our society, all the fortune tellers and the horoscopes and all these things that want us to know, the, the want that, so we can know the future. But in all reality, we shouldn't know the future. If God wanted you to know the future, he'd tell you. But it's better for us to live by faith. It's better for us to put our faith in the, in the God that we know has the future than thinking that we have to know the future. We couldn't handle it. God was very smart in how he orchestrated our lives and our ability to have just the information we need to have when we need it. And he knows what information we can handle and what we can't. Knowing the future would not help us out. It would only bring more pain and misery because I couldn't enjoy the good days. I couldn't enjoy the days that I have with me if I knew the bad day was coming. God wants us to learn how to live by faith on a daily basis. And as we learn more and more how to trust him with the information he gives us, he brings more blessing to us. We're to live with faith. I want to take the next few minutes and run through the week that that was laid out for Jesus and everything that he did with the knowledge of what lay ahead of him, and yet he was able to be so remarkably productive in his last days. If you want to turn in your Bibles to to beginning in Mark chapter 11, we're going to really highlight chapter 11, 12, and 13. So later today, maybe you want to just read those verses, those chapters. But this is what Jesus did in his last week. He, did a, he accomplished a lot for us that last week, even, in, even with him knowing the outcome of the events of that week. He still was able to be productive. Beginning at Mark 11, verse 1, let's read about the procession that day. Mark 11, starting at verse 1 and 3, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back shortly. And then skipping down to verse 11, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut on the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now again, let's let's look at that parade route a minute. The people were lined up here shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us, or come save, please save, or save us now. And the people there here saw Jesus as the political figure that was coming to save them from Roman rule and to establish Jesus as their new king. But clearly the mission that Jesus had was vastly different. He was coming as a king, but his kingdom was not a kingdom on this earth now or ever. It was to set up his kingdom in our hearts, in our hearts, which then we would be transferred to a heavenly kingdom. And then when time was over, when time was over, his earthly, or our, this earth will be, trans, will be renewed and, and ultimately the kingdom will come back to earth. But, but that's, that's way down the road. Jesus was, was looking at the, the day and he was able to live in it. And he knew that his kingdom was there to invite people to be citizens of a kingdom of their heart, not to be a kingdom of this world. And that day, it said that Jesus went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now, now, what's the significance of Jesus going into this temple? What was he looking for? What do you think he was looking for when he went in? He had been to this temple before. It wasn't the first time he'd been there. But why do you think he went there this time? And what was he looking for? The significance of Jesus entering into the temple is because he was going with a renewed passion on his earthly mission. He knew his time was short. And as he looks around, he's looking now with the eyes of God, surveying things a little differently than maybe the first time. A commentary says this, that Jesus looked around at everything in the temple area, not as a pilgrim, but as the sovereign Lord. He looks around the center of Jewish religious life to see if it is fulfilling its purpose of leading people to true worship of God. See, Jesus' passion was rising. As the days were getting closer to his final outcome, he knew he had to accomplish the task. He spent the night in Bethany, which is about three miles from the Mount of Olives, and the next morning he gets up and he's hungry like we all are in the mornings. And we see this account of him going to a fig tree. This time of the year the figs were not in full ripeness, but yet the tree was blossoming. And Jesus was there to pick a, to pick a, a, a fig. He was there to, go to eat. And, and when we see Jesus go to this fig, we see him take a rather aggressive stance at this poor little tree. But let's read this because there's something significant here. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find it, find out if it had any fruit. And when he, he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for frigs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit again from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. Now a commentary on this is interesting, because it says, Since the fruit of the fig tree begins to appear about the same time as the leaves' appearance of leaves in full bloom, should have indicated that fruit, at least in the form of green figs, they may not have been fully ripened, but they should have already been growing. And Jesus' actions here were symbolically important, signifying the hypocrisy of all who have the appearance that they are bearing fruit, but in fact they are not. Skipping down to verse 20, and fast forward to the next morning, as they were passing by the same tree, 
Mark 11, chapter 20 and 21 says, In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Again, what Jesus was prophetically saying here, he was calling out in the example of this tree that was true about the Jewish people. In that day, they should have been at a point in their Jewish life or in the Israel life that they should have been productively serving God and bearing much godly fruit. And just like the fig tree, when the leaves are out fully blossomed, it should have been productive in its fruit-bearing time as well. The point that Jesus was making here is that things don't always appear to be what they seem to be. And this was a prophetic act of judgment on the Jewish people that they will be judged and destroyed as they look fruitful, but yet their lives are anything but. In the same way today, this can be, this can be applied in our lives. Where are we in our fruit-bearing phase of our life? Now, some of us are young trees that are just beginning to bud. We're just beginning to bear leaves, and others are in full bloom. But the question for all of us is this. When Jesus comes by to be nourished by our lives, is there fruit on your tree? Are you productively producing fruit? This is the perfect illustration of what Jesus expects from us and the ultimate judgment upon us if we don't bear fruit in our Christian walk. And I think it's good that on a regular basis we take time and evaluate our life. Am I bearing fruit? Most of us in this room are at full blossom. Most of us have been Christians long enough that there should be figs on your trees. There should be figs on your, on your limbs. And some of them should be ripe by now. And as Jesus comes along and as he examines your life, is he seeing fruit? Are you nourishing him? And more importantly, are you nourishing the world around you? Because the fruit for the tree isn't for the benefit of the tree. It's for the benefit of the generations following. And it's for the people that come around and eat off that tree. So it's a good examination time for all of us to know that, and we should be examining our heart on a regular basis. Let's go back a couple of verses, back to the previous day now. Let's go back to where Jesus was walking into the temple area. And what he, what he sees and what he does, again, seems to be pretty aggressive. We don't see Jesus this way very often. We don't see Jesus angry very often. But when we read Mark 11... 15 through 18, we, we see a whole different side of Jesus than maybe what we're used to seeing. It says, on, re on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now there's a whole sermon right there, and I'm not going to spend the time to get into really what was happening there in that, in that temple area where they were selling and they were um, abusing people by the way they were selling the, the temple animals there. But I want to say this, though, that the merchants in that temple area were performing very dishonorable businesses and they're selling doves and other animals to those that were coming to sacrifice. 
And this reminds me to be very careful in my life that I as well don't be found out by the Lord in doing dishonorable things in the sight of God. Jesus didn't get often angry. He never got angry for what people did to him. But he got angry when he saw people dishonoring his father. That's righteous anger. He got angry when they saw people dishonoring his father. Do you ever dishonor his father? Have you ever dishonored God? Uh, yes, I have. God, yes, I have. But, you know, I have a serving, I have a Jesus, though, that forgives me, too. So, yes, I, let's be honest with ourselves that, that we do. And as we, as we do this, we need, to re, we need to be careful, then, in our life that we don't do this unashamedly, that we do this and we live our life before God and men in our best that we can with the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't live our life dishonoring God. Am I truly pleasing to Jesus in the way that he watches me live my life? Boy. I'll tell you, my time is getting surge, uh, shorter, and the urgency continues to increase. And, and just as it was in this time, Jesus saw the urgency of the hour, and he recognized he didn't have time to waste. He was on a mission, and his mission was to prepare people to witness the coming events of the week's end in the way that would forever change their life. Not just their life, but the whole course of history. And he needed to clear the presence of his Father's house so that those that came for true worship would have an honorable place to worship. And we need to do that as well. Ron did a really good job in Sunday school today talking about how we live our life amongst the world and how, how important it is that, that we live our life as a clean temple, as a temple that's not defiled by compromise, a temple that's not defiled by anything that this world would offer us. Because as Jesus had to clear the temple for those that could come in and do true worship, we also need to live our life in true worship to Jesus so that people are led by us into the presence of the Lord. As Jesus went through this week, he spent much, much debate with Jewish leaders and much teaching as he did, as he, would, uh, as he had to, to accomplish the task. He was questioned by those in religious power and authority, trying every way they could to trip him up every way they could to confuse him or to, or to get him to convict himself of things that were not true. He was challenged in many areas. His authority was challenged in how he was able to accomplish the many things he did. He also told a, he, he told a parable of the vineyard owner and how the tenants of the vineyard ultimately killed the owner's son, which was a direct message to the religious, of, the religious leaders of that day. They tried to trap him on should they pay taxes or not. They, they did, and, and you can go through, I won't take the time to read all this today, but it's in Mark chapter 12, verse 7 and 12, and then Mark chapter 12, verses 15 and 17, it talked about paying taxes to Caesar. And the Sadducees tried to confuse Jesus regarding the resurrection, as they didn't believe there was one, first of all. Then they wanted to trip him up on a hypothetical question that Jesus didn't fall for. He didn't fall for their traps. And then finally a man did come to him that had some truth in him, who wasn't too far off, Jesus said, where he talked about uh, what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus said, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So we see Jesus still teaching, still productively teaching. We see him at the temple patiently sitting with his disciples. And he was paying attention to the details around him. He was there looking 
and watching people as they were giving money to the temple. And he watched this little lady go in, and this little lady was a poor lady, obviously not at all like others that were giving their money in grand ways and dumping it in, so they were giving coins, and you could hear the coins rattle as it rattled in the bin, and it made all kinds of noise, and people were looking and see who gave all that money. But Jesus was watching this little lady that walked in, and she gave a mite, which is pennies, all she had. And yet Jesus said that this woman gave more than any other person gave that day. Why? Why did, she, why did he say that? Did she really give more? Did she really? I don't think so. She didn't give more, but Jesus was seeing the heart, wasn't he? That's what he sees when he sees us too. He sees the heart. He, she gave all she had, and Jesus recognized that. They gave, he said, out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See, Jesus spent that entire week doing and working with a sense of passion and urgency, knowing that his time was short. And he never got lost in his own sense of pain and grief. He knew what was coming. He knew it, and yet his passion and his love and his compassion for all the people around him kept him on task. Wow. How easily it would have been for him to hold, him up, hold himself up somewhere and just kind of feel sorry for himself and say, if I'm going to go through this guy, all right, just get it done. Let's just get it done and over with. But he was so effective, so effective to the last day. And that's encouragement for us as well, that we need to stay productive. We need to stay effective in our days. We don't have time to sit around. We don't have time to be complacent in our days, folks. We don't have time. The time is short, and it's getting shorter all the time. We may not know that the end of our life is the end of this week. We may think we may have years ahead, and probably we do. But that doesn't give us any reason to be complacent. It doesn't give us any reason to waste time. In Ephesians, it tells us, Ephesians 5:15, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Do we live in, do we live in evil days? Yeah. Let's be wise. Let's be wise. As we, as we conclude this today, as we start looking toward the end of the service here, we, we stated earlier that if, if we only knew the future, we would be more productive and better able to handle life. But again... I don't think so. I challenge that. If that was really true, then God would tell us. He would tell us what our days were going to be. We would have internal clocks that would tell us when our time was coming to an end. But obviously, since I don't know that, God would rather have us living and working and enjoying every day without being concerned about the future. Mark chapter 13, it says, Beginning in verse 32, it says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. See, in, 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 in our watching, we're not to fret and worry, though, either, because there are things that, that are going to happen that, that we may chase after that really don't have any significance in life. I have to go to Matthew chapter 6. This is probably one of my favorite verses 
But to set it up, let's read and in, in starting at, at verse 25. It says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Then skipping down to verse 31, do not, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans or the worldly people run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Here it is. This is it. This is for all of us right now. This is a thing that we all must be doing. It says in verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All these things that the Lord needs knows that you need them. He'll provide them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Don't worry about tomorrow. Live today. Live today with, with, with joy, with life and, and, and enjoyment because there's so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. Tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. And as we pray, as we seek God, as we, as we put God first in all of our things, as we make him our first priority, then I can handle tomorrow. And tomorrow doesn't become that big of a deal because I know where my strength comes from. And I know that Jesus has my day. So the two things that I really want us to get this morning are this. Of all those in the crowd that morning that were hailing Jesus, King of the Kings, and really didn't get it, they weren't calling him the king of their heart. They were looking for a king of the Jews, king of the moment. But let me ask you this morning, can you say that he is king of your heart? We know better. We know the end of the story. So are you hailing him, king of kings, lord of lords of your life? Is he that in you today? Are you making the right choice with Jesus this morning? Are you placing him as a king of your heart? And the other point I want to emphasize is the urgency of Jesus' ministry and his missional purpose. He understood how important it was that he finished the course that he was on without disruption. Do you have that same sense of urgency in your life today? See, Jesus knew exactly the amount of time he had to accomplish what he had to accomplish. He was on a mission. And I think our life should always line up like Christ. We may not know the timeline, but we know the purpose. What is our purpose here today? Our purpose is to honor Him. Our purpose is to worship Him. Our purpose is to have fellowship with Him. And the second purpose we have is to bring others to Him, to fulfill the Great Commission. We have a lot of empty seats in this church. We have a lot of work to do in this community. We have a lot of people that we can touch today. As we live a purpose-driven life, as we live a missional life, as we live a life that is going to be sold out to Jesus, let's live that life in this community that we live in, and let's be the light of the world to this dark world, this evil world that's around us, and let's show them how Christ-like people live. Amen? Let's do it because Jesus loves us so much. Let's not do it out of a sense of obligation. Let's do it out of a sense of love. Let's do it out of a sense of compassion. You know, it's amazing that day that Jesus had the ability to love people. What a terrible week he must have gone through. 
And yet he had the ability to love people in the midst of that. So as we prepare for communion this morning and celebrating Easter next week, I would encourage us all to examine our lives and and see how well we match up to living like Jesus lived. That's not too high of a standard. I mean, we're not going to be perfect. I understand that. But you know what? All we need to do is do our best. Do our best. Give our best for Jesus. It's all He requires from us. That we have a forgiven heart and that we do our best for Him and that we have a quick heart to repent. A quick heart to say, I'm sorry. Amen. Father, I just thank you, Father, for this day today. And Lord, I just uh, take a minute now before we go into communion time, and I just want to ask the question today to everyone here. Where are you in our life, Lord? Are you the king of, the, of our heart? Are you the king of our kingdom? Thank you, Jesus. As you just prepare this morning and you think about your heart and you think about the things that you're trying to accomplish in this life, where is Jesus at? Where is he at on your scale of priorities? Is he at the top or is he somewhere down in the middle? Father, I just pray that we would put you where you rightfully belong and that is on the throne of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have failed you. I ask you this morning, if if you have failed Jesus in some way, if you need to make amends with the Lord today, today is the day you can do that. By just lifting a hand and just saying, Father, it's me. I need to be forgiven again. I'm sorry for the times I've failed you. I want to be pure before you. I want to have a pure heart. I want to have a righteous heart. Just show me with a uplifted hand this morning that you recognize that. And you want to put Jesus as the king of your your heart. I see that hand. Amen. I see that hand. Thank you. It's a good thing to do this on a regular basis. It's a good thing to make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just examine our hearts now. We just take the next few minutes as we prepare for communion, Lord, that you would just do the work that you so badly want to do. And here's the important part. You're the only one that can do it. You're the only one that can forgive me of my sin. You're the only one that can deliver me from myself. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. You know, when Jesus was uh, was walking this earth and he saw people, I'm sure that his heart just went out to people all the time. And that night when he sat supper with his with his disciples and they were there eating and and when he took the cup and he took the bread and he tried to explain to them what was going to happen. And I know that they didn't really get it. <laughs> How could anybody get it? I mean, that's such an awesome thing. How could we recognize really and truly understand what Jesus was going to do that day? 
But, you know, we have the opportunity to get it. We have the opportunity. And it's so important that we take the time and that we recognize what he did for us. Because we're going, to have a, we're going to have a day, we're going to have a time where we're going to fellowship with him again. We're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to be with him and he's going to serve us. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus serving us? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just honor you this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for what you did on that, that last week of your life and how you were so diligent in doing everything you did. Lord Jesus, how can we ever say thank you? How can we ever say thank you other than for us to live a life holy and righteous before you, Father? Lord, so as we stand here this morning as people that are imperfect in our own ability, but Lord, we recognize you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you, Father. Now, it's only appropriate, folks, that we take some time to worship him. It's only appropriate now that we've just recognized what happened in that, in that week, that, that last passionate week of, of Jesus. It's time that we urgently take some time now and let's just worship him. Let's just sing a song. Let's just, as we're here, let's just spend some time and thanking him for what he did for us. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you, Father. We sing before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, Lord, I now pray that we would just bless us as we go into our homes today. 
And Lord, as we celebrate this next week, Father, as we understand what you went through, Father, help us to be reminded weekly or daily as we go through this week of your suffering and of your pain for us and your love for us and your mission. Help us to be as mission-oriented this week as you were. Lord, help us to have that focus in our life. Help us never to lose that. And Lord, as we come back next week to celebrate the risen Christ, as we celebrate your life and the life thereafter, Father, Lord, what a blessing we have, what a hope we have. Encourage us today as we go to our homes, as we go to our places, that we celebrate with our families today. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.